Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. And I'm Caleb Meyer. We're going to start this conversation by going back and referencing a few previous episodes. And this won't be as light as some of our other intros, but it's some necessary context. We've highlighted Scrubs, and our first episode was about the Joker. We also had a spotlight uh, from our friend Larissa Whitaker talking about Black Panther. It's with that in mind that we have to realize sometimes with the media we consume that the stories that are being told are impacted by real-life tragedy. Uh, whether that is, uh, in the case of Scrubs, the uh, the death of John Ritter, who played J.D.'s dad. The character was written out uh, for an episode that followed. Uh, whether it is uh, Heath Ledger passing away while The Dark Knight was in post-production and everything that came after. And then at the same time, we have uh, the fact that I think we're all uh, still processing the loss of Chadwick Boseman when it comes to Black Panther. That being said, his legacy is so much more than the superhero that he is perhaps best known for. Now, while it's not an easy starting point, we should begin this conversation by acknowledging Autumn Snyder. She died by suicide in March of 2017. And if you or a loved one has ever had thoughts of suicide, we encourage you to seek the help you need. Mental health struggles are real, and they can be even more painful when they're faced alone. of today's conversation is the Snyder Cut from director Zack Snyder, of course, and we have the opportunity with that to welcome back into the studio a dear friend of the podcast and a dear friend of ours, Lucas Gerke. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me again. Well, we open with a serious topic. We're going to move into some lighter stuff. Lucas, one of my oldest friends, if you would take us through a journey of your history with film and how you sort of got started with it all. If you want to trace it back absurdly far, I would, you know, play in the backyard with all my friends and like we'd make up stories and et cetera. And we'd call it making a movie. And we always said we were like, do you want to make a movie? And like you couldn't finish until like we couldn't move on to a different activity till the movie ended. Um, and most of our movies were about 30 minutes long. But then you hit, you know, fast forward to third grade when my mom's friend randomly gave us this clunky shoulder mounted video camera that you shoved VHSs in. And we started just recording everything. It definitely built a fascination to the point that fast forward to college age Lucas majoring in communication with a concentration in film. And obviously there were some gaps. It wasn't like straight from third grade to college. It was just constantly... I want to be heavily involved in film. 
I always kind of viewed it as without intending to sound pretentious, kind of the highest form of storytelling uh, because it incorporates so many different art forms and so many different artists and so many different creators that are all required to make a movie work. So that really fascinated me because I've, I've always been really into storytelling. As it went along, I think my tastes started developing and uh, my favorite movie to this day is Kick-Ass and probably always will be because something about however old I was when I watched it or whatever. And it just blended comedy and drama so well. Like I thought I was going into a straight comedy and then it kind of kind of hit gets dark as it goes on and hits you with some feels and has really awesome action sequences that are really well choreographed and the score just like floored me. And so many of the the pieces that resonate with us have that kind of wonderful blend of drama and oh, comedy. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I want to speak to a couple of things you just mentioned because if you had not gone to St. Francis with the intention to study communication and film, I would not have met you guys. True. And so I am very happy that that was a a part of your journey. We met in pet band. Yes, we did. (laughs) (laughs) No. And the trombone section happened to be right next to the bass players. It worked out well. And I, cause I still remember a basketball game hearing you describe during some of our downtime that we had, uh, you were the first person that I knew who had seen Kingsman. And you yes. were just rolling and rolling. I saw an opening the, night. There you that go. That was a treasure. It's all with Caleb, actually. It was like we we could have gone and seen Fifty Shades of Grey. Instead. Sure, we considered it. <laughs> it was a tough choice there, uh, but I think we made the better one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. Oh my word! So well, it's funny. We were talking about, or you mentioned your favorite film, which you said Kick Ass, but I would have put money down that you would have said Man of Steel. And. Honestly, when Man of Steel came out, which was obviously later, it was close just because and I think primarily my thing with Man of Steel is I don't know how to describe it. It just made me feel so many things. And I feel like I didn't go into a Superman movie expecting it to be really anything because I wasn't really a huge Superman fan. I had read the comics. Yeah, I'd read a decent amount of Superman comics and a lot of Justice League. And I liked, you know, I liked him in the cartoons. And I honestly, I thought I liked Superman Returns for what it was. But anyways, so I always thought he was kind of fun, but like sort of just there. I didn't think I'd really invest in him. And like then this movie came out and I like, I don't know, I think the score helps a lot. (laughs) Yeah. But but it just, I really, I never, I just never saw Superman in that light. And obviously it was divisive. Plenty of like some people did not like the way it presented him, but I just thought it was such a fresh take and it made me feel different ways than I ever expected to for Superman. I don't think it flipped me around as much as Kick-Ass did. Because like when Kick-Ass came out, I didn't even know what I was getting into. And it like, I was like, this is like the kind of movie I would want to (laughs) make. Like, I would say, in my opinion, the best movie, in my opinion, as, as you've heard me say countless times, is The Matrix. I think The Matrix is flawless and should be the most treasured film of our time, of all time, really. I think when it comes to sheer enjoyment, I, I could watch Kick-Ass infinitely. <laughs> and as fun as it would be to go down a rabbit hole on the Wachowskis, let's... <laughs> and it'd be a deep one. <laughs> indeed. But let's stay on... A director who's already come up, especially uh, with the mention of Man of Steel in the context of our conversation, mm-hmm. uh, your admiration for Zack Snyder as a director, as a creator. Yes. Tell us about that journey. When did you, if you recall, what's the first of his films that you recall seeing and then through to present day? Some of your impressions is you've watched his movies. My first one had to have either been 300 or Watchmen. And 
I didn't connect it at first. Like, I didn't know it was made by the same guy, even though it's pretty obvious. But, um, like, he has I, a style. I don't, because I mean, obviously, I know which one came out first. I probably saw 300 first because I think I saw it not too long after it came out. And then I saw Watchmen. I didn't get to see it in theaters, but I, the first time I watched it was the director's cut, like, as soon as the DVD came out. 300's fun. I really like it, but it didn't make me rethink my life or anything. But Watchmen, on the other hand, God, I just I hadn't read the graphic novel when I watched the movie. I hadn't read it yet. So I went in knowing nothing and I it was just something else. I couldn't even describe it. I was like, this is a superhero movie technically, but it it's not like any superhero movie I've ever seen. And then when I read the graphic novel shortly afterwards and saw just how true to the source material he was and that it, like I don't know. I could tell like he was something else and he really he just has such a passion for his work. And I think that can make him divisive because he really sticks to his guns. Yeah, he definitely has a style, but it's a style I really like. And he just always manages to make me feel something. And that's honestly what I really look for in like my favorite movies. Would you say that some of that and again, just in reference to your appreciation for Snyder and some of what Snyder is most known for, would you say that primarily kind of goes back to his, the stylistic visuals and just the elements of to what extent, like there is so much to, especially a (laughs) slow-mo Snyder shot or moment that do you feel like that is what kind of grabs you the most uh, of the, the experience of his movies? That's a big chunk of it. I think I would argue it's the, it's the atmosphere he creates. He's, Mm. he's kind of a king at creating atmosphere. And some Mm. people argue that he, he focuses so hard on it that he kind of loses out on some other things, but you know, I want a movie to be an experience And when you go into a Zack Snyder movie, it's going to be an experience because he creates an atmosphere that you just get completely soaked in and it just envelops you. And I think not only the strength of the atmospheres he creates, but just the manner in which he goes about it, they're very emotionally charged a lot of the time. I mean, gosh, even thinking like in Watchmen when she like they're on Mars and Silk Spectre drops to her knees and like pounds on the, the construct that Dr. Manhattan created and it starts breaking like Moments like that, he just kills it. He just makes it so powerful. And I think that's, it's really those atmospheres he creates and the the emotion he charges it with that just gets me. This might be jumping the gun a little bit, but I think that's my favorite thing about the Snyder Cut of Justice League is the atmosphere of it. Because he does such a good job of letting that movie breathe when it needs to and build towards those emotional climactic moments. I would agree. I mean, in so many ways, when you have the earlier pieces like 300 and Watchmen, uh, when it comes to some of his comic book work, I mean, it's a masterclass in adaptation, uh, especially considering just the, I mean, thermodynamic miracles and everything about that scene from the original book, too. I mean, it just just resonates with you so much uh, in Watchmen. There's something to be said then for, if we're talking about that mood, that tone that Snyder can set, then the consistency is so important. And after Zack Snyder lost his daughter in 2017 and so much was going on behind the scenes with the production before that and then continued on from there and just this utterly insane backstory that kind of has to be understood to understand what you're watching when it comes to the Snyder Cut. Uh, Before we kind of dig further into what we saw can you help us understand a little bit of some of what went on behind the scenes? Because like I've 
kind of followed it and i feel like other people might say it with that same inflection if they were asked but i know you have followed everything that's gone on with Zack snyder more actively so let's set the table a little bit where do you think is the best starting point whether we're talking about man of steel and batman v superman to kind of understand what we saw with Zack Snyder's Justice League. Okay, yeah, since uh, since I have followed it quite religiously, I don't think I've ever been this passionate about a work of fiction since End of Evangelion. I would argue it started with Batman versus Superman, if we're going into this saga of what happened at Justice League. Because, yeah, Man of Steel, it didn't turn out the numbers they wanted it to, and it, it divided the crowd. You had... Longtime Superman fans who were like, I don't like what they did with Superman. You had people who didn't care for Superman who suddenly liked Superman. And overall, it was it was relatively successful. So they were like, all right, we can roll with that. Like the studio was fine. So then Batman versus Superman came much later. They had to do, do a lot of work to get that to get that ball rolling. And everyone was really excited because Comic-Con that year was all DC. And that was when we got the first trailers for Batman versus Superman and Suicide Squad. And everybody was freaking about DC. Well, the budget for Batman vs. Superman was colossal. It was um, without counting for advertisements. It was over $400 million, which was kind of unprecedented. And, you know, the star power was huge and just like the production, everything. And and Zack Snyder had already started making choices that were dividing people before the movie came out. So we're going to I think we should start with that because a lot of people had no confidence in Ben Affleck as Batman. As soon as they announced it, they were like, what were they thinking? And my thoughts was we thought what were they thinking when they said Heath Ledger is the Joker and look how that turned out. So like, you know, don't don't judge. A lot of people were skeptical about Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor. Those were the two big ones. Some of the casting decisions were no brainers, especially when you consider Gal Gadot and just the fact that Batman v Superman is the first time we get to see the Trinity. Yeah. I mean, as far as things that that film got right, it was so wonderful to finally see. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, okay, we're here, all one piece, Absolutely. thank goodness. And we would be loath to not talk about Jeremy Irons as Alfred. He's a great Perfect Alfred. casting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially for the the vibe they're setting up with Zack Snyder's universe, or the Snyderverse as it's been coined lately. He was the perfect Alfred for that Batman, and I think that matters a lot. If You, you gotta have a, an Alfred to match your Batman. I don't remember the exact number, what was it? However many armed hostiles on the third floor, why don't I drop you off on the second? Gosh, he's just so sassy. I love it. I could get into that, but that's not what we're, where we're going right now. But um, I think the beginning of this entire saga would start with the production of Batman versus Superman, though, because there was skepticism from a lot of fans going in. And I think Snyder knew it was going to be divisive. People were already freaking out that they had a movie where Batman and Superman fought because they clearly had never picked up a comic book. If I may inject one thing here, because I know Batman v Superman is kind of where our thoughts diverged. Right. And it would just be that or they're afraid that the creators have only picked up the one comic book and it's just going to be the Dark Knight Returns. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of people I heard. And you know what's interesting? I heard people that were disappointed that it wasn't just a straight adaptation of The Dark Knight Returns. And I heard people disappointed at how much they pulled from The Dark Knight Returns. And I'm like, I don't know. When you're making a movie, it doesn't have to be direct when you have so much source material to come to to pick from. I think you have the creative freedom at that point to um, take a lot of liberties uh, and make it your own. That's Mm -hmm. what's beautiful about adaptations off of characters that have been in so many things is you have a lot of, there's like a brand new vision you can bring to it. And this was kind of just coming off of Christian Bale's tenor as Batman. So they had to make it as different as they could, I think. Mm -hmm. But the studio, they were in this weird funk where they decided all movies have to be short. Uh, Nobody wants to watch a long movie. And 
the truth of the matter is people don't want to watch a long movie if it can't hold their attention for the entire runtime. And I mean, even Martin Scorsese is is infamous for making movies technically longer than they need to be, but usually you're still having a good time the whole time. The Irishman. And, and yeah. I always, I always <laughs> say with hours. a movie or a speech, I don't care how long it is as long as it doesn't feel like it's length. It's, I don't want it to be, oh, it's over already, or this is just dragging. Exactly. Because, yeah, a long movie works if you're if the pacing's good and you're in your attention. Exactly. And this uh, mentality would carry over spectacularly horribly it once you get to justice league, but that's a bit ahead of ahead of where we're at. So they wanted it to be shorter. I think the original cut was like a little over three hours. They chopped off a lot of story beats that connected other story beats and dropped a lot of really important character moments. And to, to get it down to two and a half hours. The Ultimate Edition, which has all the footage that they sliced, fills in all those gaps. It's insane how much they removed, even though really the Ultimate Edition is only about 15 minutes longer, I think, maybe a half hour. It's I think it's a half hour longer. It's a half hour longer than the original, and honestly, that half hour is everything. It, it, it fills in all the gaps. It makes the whole movie come together. And I liked the theatrical release. I had a great time in the theater. I, I was having a gas. But like, I mean, you know, when people were like, okay, but how does this make sense? I'm like, okay, you got me there. It doesn't. But then I saw the Ultimate Edition, like, it does. And I think that was the beginning. The studio meddled with it really hard. And so then you get to Suicide Squad. Obviously, on a kind of critical level, not a very good movie. It's a fun time. I think it's pretty fun to watch. But... Yeah, they, they screwed up a lot. To clarify, we are talking about the 2016 film rather than the one that James Gunn is working on right now. Correct. And David Ayer, who honestly has an amazing record. He's a very, very good record. He made Training Day. He made Fury uh, and U571, which is probably the lesser known of all of his work. But he made it and people were hype. Uh, test audiences responded really well. And obviously there was the Comic-Con buildup and all that. And... After Batman vs. Superman came out, they were like, people are saying it's not funny enough. Let's make this like a little goofier. And so they forced some reshoots. And then David Ayer was reported as saying he wasn't even allowed in the editing room because they wanted it to be the way they wanted it, even though he wrote it and directed it. Also, they only gave him six weeks to write it. So I think he actually, for what I hear about what the original screenplay was, he made a banger of a script for having only six weeks. Suicide Squad, again, commercially actually did very well. And there was a poll done by The Atlantic in 2017 that actually said a large chunk of audiences really did prefer the movie. They did like it. But again, that just shows us how much better could it have been if the studio didn't make a bunch of very ill-advised decisions. Consigned to the dustbin of film by committee. Correct. That's where you're going to get in trouble. So this is where my question comes in. Because after Suicide Squad, that takes us to Justice League. Was there a singular person in charge of this whole DC movie universe, uh, like equivalent to Kevin Feige over at Marvel, because we've seen how one person with a vision who's involved in all the decisions and guiding it can be a good thing. And then if you look at star Wars with Kathleen Kennedy running everything, but not having a specified plan laid out, how that can sort of lead to problems. Was there something like that at Warner brothers? Yes and no. Because, okay, Zack Snyder was their Kevin Feige. After Man of Steel, once they decided to make Batman versus Superman, which he did not want it to be called that, by the way, because he didn't want that to be the focus of the film. After, when they were making that, you know, he laid out his entire plan for this extended universe and tons of movies. And that's why you see him as lead producer on just about every DC project until, 
I think until Shazam. I would have said that just on a guess. Because he wrote the screenplay for Wonder Woman, which nobody seems to credit him for. Everybody acknowledges how good that movie is, but like he wrote it. He wrote basically the whole thing. So yeah, it was Zack Snyder. He was the over the overseer, but they had people like the executives and the chairmans and the presidents uh, of Warner Brothers. And they were pulling his strings a lot harder than the Disney people were for Kevin Feige. And Batman vs. Superman came out in 2016. And between that and where we're at now, I'll just say it's between that and where we are at now, which is currently 2021. That's only five years. And they have gone through four different CEOs at Warner Brothers in charge of the film department. And three CEOs in charge of DC films at Warner Brothers. So the leadership keeps changing around and they have a really weird structure where different people are all in charge of different sections that all have to cooperate. So they have a DC films president or CEO, I think is the title and then a Warner media CEO and they have to agree. And then later we'll get into the HBO max department of things where there's another group of people that all have to agree with the Warner brothers people. And this pattern of meddling, it somehow didn't affect Wonder Woman. I'm really not sure how, because honestly, Wonder Woman felt like a Zack Snyder film in a few ways, just in that it took itself very seriously. It was very dramatic, had a lot of big set pieces and a lot of there was some slow-mo in it. Well, and it's also just given, I mean, again, it comes out in 2017, but then you think about when it was in the pipeline prior to watching the Snyder cut. I would have used the phrase course correction. I don't feel like that's the right phrase to use. Yeah. But given when that was in the pipeline, you would have had that coming along with very much Snyder's influence in play prior to when things started to get, let's say, redirected. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. And all of these changes and the the, because the weird thing is that the studio seemed unaware that their kind of decisions when it came to editing and reshoots, et cetera, were kind of what was hurting their movies. And again, Batman versus Superman and Suicide Squad both actually performed pretty well. Uh, they didn't hit the marks they wanted, but the marks they set were really high. So they were still technically successful and they had cultivated a sizable fan base that I think in any other franchise would have been more than acceptable. Well, didn't Batman v Superman make over $800 million at the box office? Initially, yeah, and that was and, before disc sales. Yeah, so it did very well financially. Yeah. And uh, disc sales were through the roof. It outsold Civil War, actually, when uh, when it came to disc sales. So that, which I think is kind of big, personally. And we're referencing, I mean, we've brought up Kevin Feige. We've now had a couple references to the Marvel films that were going on around the same time. And just in so many ways, DC kind of needed to earn where they were going to be. They were kind of trying to rush and it's like, oh, this will be as good as what Marvel was already maybe 10, 12 films deep into. Yeah. And that approach will work if you are putting together a piece that's able to bring in a lot of elements and give them all breathing room. Yeah. And because of the difficulties they were having with editing and post-production, that wasn't going to happen. Correct. And and some people thought that even Batman versus Superman was like too, like there was like too much in it. And I'm like, well... When you add a half hour, that gives you way more space. And this led up ultimately to 2017 to kind of everything that went wrong. A lot went wrong with 
with the Justice League theatrical release. And it was it was a catastrophe, honestly. Uh, first of all, the real catastrophe was, yes, Zack Snyder's daughter committing suicide, which uh, wasn't public knowledge at first. He, he was trying to work through it. He thought that working on the movie would kind of help him cope. And in the end, he decided it would be better to just spend time with his family because um, obviously that work would take him away from his family. And uh, he felt like they needed him, which I'm sure they did. This was like the last nice thing Warner Brothers ever did for Zack Snyder was they offered to push back production for him, which I'm really surprised. Obviously, Ann Sarnoff was not in charge at that point. because She hates his guts. Yeah. So they did offer him that, but he didn't want to throw off their schedule. So he being the being the gentleman decided to step down. So how far along was the movie at the point that he stepped away? If I recall, it was like over 75% shot. They were doing plenty of post-production simultaneously. So it like a, a good amount of that was done. I, I, I want to say, yeah, it was close to 80% finished in principal photography. So then they brought Whedon in, which I'm not even entirely sure whose idea that was. But he showed up. And he at first was just directing what what was left of the movie. And then he started doing some rewrites and then he started doing some reshoots. And some of that was studio pressure because they wanted to clip it down to two hours and the raw cut, the assembled cut was five hours, which they obviously needed to cut down to some degree. But the CEO at the time decided they had to have a two hour movie, which is absolutely insane because that's shorter than Batman versus Superman. Also shorter than Infinity War, which had come out around the same time. Or at the very least, Infinity War then had Endgame. You have the opportunity to split your movie into Correct. two and tell the longer story with the vessel that you need to be able to get all of those plot elements yeah. into play. And the initial plan was to have Justice League in two parts. The studio didn't like that idea. Cause the, and that's not just Warner Brothers. That was across the board. Studios had hit a point where they, they didn't like the idea of movies being in parts because in their heads, it's like incomplete. They're like, we want to give you a full movie. We don't want you to feel like you're only watching part of a movie. So studios across the board, to their credit, were um, all nixing the idea of part one and part two. I think they also focus tested that audiences, they had less audience turnout if they named them parts one and part two. I do think that happened. I've heard that. Because, like, you know, you'd have a movie that's something part two and people would be like, well, I haven't seen part one. So they wouldn't go see it. Whereas even though Endgame really was a part two, plenty of people who never saw Infinity War went and saw Endgame. So it, all of that resulted in the CEO saying, hey, we need this movie to be two hours, which was frankly impossible. And Joss Whedon didn't just decide to help edit it down to two hours. He decided to add a bunch of his own stuff. And a good chunk of the final product were the, the extra scenes he wrote. And he wasted a lot of screen time. There's a lot of, like, for only having two hours, you'd think it would have to be jam-packed with plot and content that's just bam, bam, bam. And honestly, it, it spends a lot of the time dicking around. It doesn't really do anything. Well, and this is where we can delve into it a little bit. I think where maybe a lot of people's headspace is right now kind of parallels uh, a couple of narratives. One being that uh, the last year, uh, there's been a lot about Whedon <laughs> that has come from actors and actresses a who have worked lot. with them in the past, uh, whether you're going all the way back to Buffy with Charisma Carpenter or uh, more recently with Justice League and Ray Fisher. And then I think one of the I've been watching a lot of YouTube video essays recently, but I think it was Lindsay Ellis referred to Zack Snyder seems to be one of the few decent, powerful men in Hollywood. The end results comparing 
these two films like true Whedon had the Avengers track record but brunch is not shawarma like there's not good like so many of the things that seem to work within the Marvel apparatus fell completely flat in what we saw in 2017 and I mean it's he was entering a literal new universe and decided to just weeden it up and literally the first so in in Avengers and Age of Ultron, he had a subplot that he wrote into both scripts and he shot the whole thing and they cut it every time. In the first Avengers, it was just, it was a, it was a, a waitress. waitress. Yeah, where he had this subplot with this waitress where it was just showing her surviving the attacks and he spent a lot of screen time on it and the studio was like, this is a waste of time, let's cut it. In Age of Ultron, he did it again. There was a family in Sokovia that he has an entire scene of like multiple times throughout the entire final act. They're also in the opening. And he shows them over and over again. And the studio was like, we're going to cut that because it doesn't do anything. And as we know, he did that for the Russian family again. And I'm like, was he just going to keep doing that until somebody let him put it in a movie? <laughs> and they did. And it, in a movie that already was way too compressed, we spent, I think it's a solid 12 minutes or more. It's a lot of screen time on, on this just family. just this family hiding in a shack. May I circle back to the waitress real quick? Because I yeah. just want to ask, was it Ashley Johnson? Yes. yes. Well, and focusing so much time 12 minutes in a two-hour movie is a lot of screen time and he didn't use any of that for the character story of two of the main characters cyborg and flash and i would even argue aquaman has very little content in the theatrical i'd agree with that version he he kind of shows up says my man and then like he had the one thing where he's standing on the lasso that that piece of dialogue which that was actually not bad but again Joss Whedon put in mostly comedic elements, which not that the DCEU was devoid of humor up to this point. I mean, Alfred's got some bangers in Batman versus Superman, but it's just like he tried to suddenly make it this cute, fun family romp, which is what the Marvel movies were. And the reason those succeeded is because that was their thing. You, you can't just try to copy and paste that and make this next movie successful. And I think the studio was on board for trying to get the Marvel fans to like this DC movie. And I'm like, well, what you're essentially doing is taking the fan base you had already created saying, all right, we're going to leave them back here. And instead we're going to get the people who don't like these movies to like this movie. And that that's such a backwards way to think for me. I almost referenced this earlier, but the, the line from Braun keeps coming into my head. The, if you spend your whole life trying to please people, you're going to be the most popular dead man who ever lived. <laughs> Because it's so true when you see these films getting pulled in so many different directions. And at the expense, you just referenced the My Man moment when Cyborg catches Aquaman. That means so much more once you have seen the longer version where you've seen Cyborg's journey and you've seen that the way they actually connect. And yeah. the fact that you have the loss of Cyborg's father and the fact that Aquaman is really the only member of the Justice League with his father figure still in play. Yeah. So just the levels of connection that are there in the intended cut that comes so many years later as opposed to the cut down version we got in 2017. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And and you know, also replacing Tom Holkenborg as the composer and and throwing in Danny Elfman was, was such that misstep is the smallest way I could word that. I I don't know if there's a strong enough verb to describe how poor of a decision that was. Now, granted, I think a Danny Elfman score in a Zack Snyder movie already wasn't going to work. But they, it's like they they just stacked every possible thing against the movie that they possibly could in, in a weird attempt to get a brand new audience. 
I've just never heard of any studio making a decision like that. And like you hear about studio meddling all the time and but it usually results in, oh, that scene would have been cool to see. As opposed to the entire movies of Frankenstein's monster that nobody really likes. A little addendum on this because I just started scrolling under Elfman's name on Spotify. Oh, yeah. uh, I didn't realize I was going to run into so many Fifty Shades titles. Uh, so we get that second Comes back reference around. for this You gotta episode. look at that Oingo Boingo. Though. Whoa, oh gosh. Yeah. Oh man. No, that, that blew my mind the first time I saw Back to School and Oingo Boingo is playing at the dorm party. Oh my word. And then you have Robert Downey Jr. playing the roommate in that film and taking what could have been just such a one-note character and making Derek the roommate iconic when they're getting, when they're registering for classes. Well, I got my Latin and I got my Sanskrit. But then they took away my ancient Greek, which just blew my whole dead languages motif. <laughs> anyway, you have, uh, I, I scrolled down until I saw something. It's like, oh, that looks like it was reasonably successful. And it was 2015 Avengers Age of Ultron, previously working uh, with Whedon yeah. and working in the MCU. And, which is, and I, I heard that it is Whedon who brought Elfman in. Um, and Tom Holkenborg had already written a good chunk of the score. So that's another, that's another huge disrespect. Like literally just like, I know you're the current composer for this film, but please leave. <laughs> Those like, elements are always interesting. Cause when we, when I took film scoring and orchestration, I actually, no, I will say we, cause I, John, you and I took film scoring and orchestration together. I remember Dr. Kandau talking about Howard Shore and mm. how post Lord of the Rings. And I think it was way before the Hobbit ever got close to production but there was disagreement about what he and jackson were actually going to work on together and shore himself if i recall correctly is in king kong conducting the orchestra in the end at the theater <laughs> but it's amazing there was enough of a disagreement that it wasn't his work and so if you watch that scene the music that's playing actually does not match the conductor in the oh, orchestra wow you know since hulkenborg he, he stopped going by junkie xl which i think was a good idea because he sounds more professional but Hulkenborg, I mean, he was Zimmer's top student. Like, he trained directly under him. That's why they did the Batman vs. Superman score together. They also did it together because Hans Zimmer had just come off of composing the Dark Knight trilogy, and he didn't want that to influence how he did Batman's music. And Hulkenberg even worked with him on that, too. Yeah. On Dark, yeah. Knight, on Dark Knight Rises, at least. Yeah, I think it was only the third one, yeah. But then, you know, you have that really beautiful piano piece when Thomas and Martha Wayne get shot that really just sticks with me like that opening scene like the music is honestly i think what really makes that scene work so well and actually yeah since we're about to delve into snyder cut stuff christopher nolan he produced man of steel he produced batman versus superman and i can't remember if his name was on the theatrical cut of justice league because he hated it and he and snyder are actually pretty close like they're buds and they help each other with each other's projects. Nolan did a lot for Justice League, at least the Snyder Cut, if not just the project as a whole. And I know that as a producer, he definitely he put in a lot because I think he was producer and executive producer. So Well, I don't know. Supposedly when the theatrical version was released, Zack Snyder's wife and Christopher Nolan went to go see the movie. Zack Snyder did not see it. And when they came back, they told Zack Snyder, you can never see this film. And apparently he never watched it. Zack Snyder never saw it, and Can't blame it was him. primarily because Christopher Nolan and Deborah Snyder were both like, y "You are forbidden to watch it." Like, which I understand. I think it would have just destroyed him to see what they did to his, you know, see how they massacred my boy. I couldn't even imagine. Absolutely, I might be finding a connection here where there isn't one, but I feel like you can definitely see so much of the fact that, I mean, granted, 
they only missed each other by a year, but you have the conclusion of Nolan's Batman films right before Snyder's DC Universe launches, and there definitely was some overlap. David Goyer stayed on as a, a writer, both under Nolan and then under Snyder. And I think it's Patrick H. Willems. I'm pulling in video essayists right and left now, but he did a video, I think within this last year, talking about how IMAX and just the visual things you have to consider for Nolan made him a better filmmaker yeah. and just some of the ways in which he framed shots and some of the, again, like we see the ways in which Nolan is growing visually and then some writers are overlapping. So yeah, you can see those connections between them very yeah. easily as Nolan kind of hands the DC baton off yeah, and, and then, Snyder takes over. And it it kind of did a fade because then you hit Batman versus Superman and it was Zack Snyder and Chris Terrio. They are also the super team that wrote the original script for Justice League uh, that became what is what we now are referring to as the Snyder Cut. Shall we dive in? I mean, there are so many observations. I've got a There's few. There's a lot to dive in. Yeah. On, oh, yeah. my word. Well, let, well, let's start with, if you're a fan of Flash or Cyborg and justifiably we're deeply disappointed with what we got in 2017, their pieces within the Snyder Cut are amazing. Especially Just absolutely amazing. the Flash. Yeah. For me, the Flash was like the standout character in the Snyder Cut. Like his moments, both when he meets Iris and then... Flash's part in the final battle is probably one of the coolest sequences I've ever seen in a comic book film. Absolutely. And it, it just it's so weird because Cyborg went from a basically non-existent character who was just there to fill a slot to kind of the heart of the team. Mm -hmm. And Snyder successfully made it so that success could not have come about without every single member of the Justice League present. Every single one of them had a crucial part to play, and I think that's, like, so important. And if we want to get into some of the behind-the-scenes stuff with shortening it in the theatrical cut, I know that Cyborg scenes, obviously from the product you can tell they got sliced up and completely just removed, but I remember there was a huge argument with, with him and Whedon, and this, you know we've been hearing a lot about, Ray, Ray Fisher's been very vocal, and God bless him for it, about Joss Whedon's treatment of him, and he changed a bunch of his dialogue too. It was him trying to literally make him sound more black, and... Uh, Ray Fisher was like, "Hey, I, I see what you're trying to do, but like, I'm actually black, so I know how to how I talk." And he was trying to, he was trying to give him pointers, and apparently, Joss Whedon does not take constructive criticism, so that started the kind of bitterness in their relationship. Is that he was writing basically how he thought Cyborg should talk, and it was all is very stereotypical and very not tasteful, and then also cutting a bunch of screen time from him, etc., and then. Obviously, he put some Whedonisms in, uh, like the Flash falling onto Wonder Woman's boobs. And then, like, there's also a line change that, in my opinion, is, is a big deal. But there's a lot of debate on it. Where Steppenwolf and Wonder Woman are opposite ends of the bridge and they're about to 1v1, which is great. In Zack Snyder's version, he says, he, he calls off the parademons and he says, this one's mine. And she says, I belong to no one and dives at him and they have a really cool fight. But... Whedon, in the theatrical cut, he changed it to some simple line like, you overestimate yourself, I think is what he has her say. And she tried to fight him on that. She's like, why would you not want me to say that I don't belong to people? <laughs> and he, uh, I guess, threw a huge tantrum. When they were in production here, this was before Wonder Woman had come out. So the success of that wasn't known. And he, they said in his words, he would end her career. They said that's... Gal Gadot said that he said that Ray Fisher said he said that. And there's like a couple other like 
grips or something that said that could corroborated it. And like, so he was really very vicious and malicious about that. And it's just crazy to see what the characters were meant to be like, including Wonder Woman, who was already a character we liked, uh, like even from Batman versus Superman. And just the care he put in versus the the care completely stripped away. I was just about to say it's it's stripped down to the point of being generic, if not given some of what you've just said in the last five minutes, a caricature, Yeah, uh, which obviously is not good. Now I can't even remember who I'm referencing here, but there was, while well, we're talking about dialogue and talking about Steppenwolf, between scenes that are in the Snyder Cut that aren't in the Justice League, as well as between dialogue that's changed and on paper doesn't seem like a lot but then in practice is like is the difference between steppenwolf being a cardboard cutout and a really fleshed out interesting villain yeah because for the villain to matter you need to be able to somewhat sympathize with them yeah and that's not there in the 2017 version but it's there in the snyder Cut. yeah and and the because the thing is if you're going to make a villain compelling without having any amount of sympathy you just need to make their on-screen presence really impressive obviously like the joker i think is a character that like you can't really empathize with but at the same time you're not supposed to but he's just so darn entertaining to see and i think with man of steel you had general zod where you kind of saw where he was coming from even though you definitely didn't agree with him you understood he had a motive mm-hmm. and, it, and it was very well explained steppenwolf where you have the kind of weird like gi joe viking looking thing that they had in the theatrical cut um which yes the v- visual design was also really bad so i watched the theatrical cut when it came out and then never right. saw it again Neither after I. that i still haven't and then Obviously, I saw the Snyder Cut when it came out, but I saw a picture of what Steppenwolf looked like originally the other day, and it I was like, oh, it's so ugly. Compared yeah, like, to what it looks like in the Snyder Cut, I was like, this is, this is very bad. Yeah, I don't I don't even know how they... Because he showed... You know, you see him in Batman versus Superman, which again, that's a... Ben, you wouldn't have seen that scene that, that's cut in. I need to catch the Ultimate Edition. Uh, I really yeah, do. it's... So you actually do get to see him briefly in the Ultimate Edition of Batman versus Superman. And he looks like he does in the Snyder Cut. And then suddenly Justice League released and we were like, wait, what? <laughs> like, and, and then, yeah, t- take that into account as well as the fact that they cut basically all of his dialogue and development. You don't care about him at all in the theatrical cut. And even like Thanos got redesigned as we went up through the different movies where you were seeing him in post credit scenes or bit parts in Guardians of the Galaxy until yeah. he finally he got teased up. Mm-hmm. And part of that was technology advanced yeah, as they went along. Absolutely. And then also, once we get to Infinity War and you really need to see his entire face and see him emote, and so much of what Brolin brings to that performance yeah. just comes out thanks to what they were able to do with the CGI and, and the, the way they upgraded the look of the character yeah. as they went. And you can't really see a reason for any of the changes from what was coming to what we got in 17 to what came later. I know I'm saying that a lot, but it's so true with just the way Steppenwolf was both a better designed villain as well as a more compelling one given his connection to Apocalypse and his desire to return home and his dynamic with Darkseid. If you take that away, one, you're doing a poor job of setting up future conflict with Apocalypse and Darkseid himself, and two you're taking away an aspect of your villain's motivation that might make him more interesting to your audience. Yeah. And, and they had such, and Sierra and Hines has such a good voice. Oh yeah. It was like kind of the perfect casting choice for him. He sounds amazing. 
kind of the main thing that's the difference between the two. If you compare them on a very general level, they have the same plot. There's a few key differences, but if you paint it with a broad brush, it's the same plot between the theatrical cut and the Snyder cut. Technically. It is entirely in the execution that changes the yeah, two. It's, it's, I mean, I would. It, I think it's fair to say, yeah, I agree with you on, the, on it being the same plot, but I think it's fair to say it's a different movie. It's oh, yeah, not, no. It's not a different entirely. cut of the same movie. It is a different movie. Mm-hmm. I still have little things here or there where I could be critical, but and granted, I've, I feel kind of... I almost feel like I do sometimes with students that I've been rooting for in the context of being like a coach or a teacher. It's like... I look forward to the point when I'm just nitpicking because if we're not having to deal with anything truly essential to the foundation of what you're doing, then we're in a good place. Yeah. And are there times where maybe the slow-mo might've been a little unnecessary, at least for some fair. Yeah. A little long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there times where again, like, and I also feel like, and granted, I, I now have to preface this with, I need to see the ultimate edition. It felt like the Snyder cut did get the characterization of Superman and Batman closer to what we are used to in general. I mean, still different from like the classic Superman and Batman portrayal, whatever that even means in people's heads, everyone's going to have different thoughts on that, but closer to the comic book version or closer to like, I actually did think of some of the animated series stuff in my head when we were talking about, Man of Steel because the Zod plotline is very similar to what the Thanagarians want to do in Justice League. Yes. It's like, we're going to come to Earth and we're going to use Earth for our own purposes. Yeah. And they are up against their own struggle and potentially the destruction of their entire people, race, and planet, but it does not justify what they intend to do right, on Earth. Correct. And you see some similarities there, or at least some ways in which it's well executed here, it's well executed here. And, oh boy, it's just amazing to what extent, again, movie by committee just falls falls apart completely. Because yeah. if you look at Zack Snyder's Justice League, which, you know, is... I almost hope someday we can get to a point where that's just what we call Justice League and then the other one's the Justice League. I uh, would. Because that's all him. It's his vision entirely. And the other one is what happens when you have Joss Whedon bastardizing Zack Snyder's work, but then you also have layers upon layers of studio of studio execs also kind of passing down what they want to be done with it and you just have everybody ripped off a piece and put on a new one and it was just this mess whereas they gave him the opportunity to make what he was planning on making and let's face it even if tragedy hadn't struck and Zack Snyder was allowed to stay on they still wouldn't have let him make what we got to see on HBO Max. They still would. We still wouldn't have gotten that version. And I'm sure plenty of people would have reviled it. The only reason we even got an HBO Max version of it, um, aside from the fact that, you know, we were in the dead center of COVID-19. Warner Brothers had pushed back every, every project. Everything was halted on filming. They kind of didn't have anything to do. And HBO Max was coming out, which was great because it was at home. You know, people could just watch it from their couch in the safety of their isolation. And they wanted a really big platform to kind of like something really big to help launch it. And, you know, the release, the Snyder Cut movement had been huge. It had been building and building and building. And it was kind of a pipe dream. I was shouting from the rooftops, release the Snyder Cut. And even I didn't think it was ever going to actually happen. Because there were Warner Brothers people saying that it didn't exist. 
uh, aside from the huge fan outcry for it, there was also AT&T who owns Warner Brothers. They actually pressured them to make it happen. Whoever's in charge at AT&T, they are Zack Snyder fans. Uh, in fact, the AT&T headquarters has a Zack Snyder exhibit, which I think is amazing. Uh, and it actually has all the, a bunch of the original storyboards for Batman versus Superman and Justice League. So uh, that's pretty cool. But they pressured Warner Brothers and HBO Max. They said, hey, we want you to do this. And they kind of couldn't say no to Big Daddy AT&T. So they did. Yeah. And as Caleb was saying earlier, they put millions of dollars into the CG to help them finish it out. And if you look, they still did some really clever corner cutting. And I, I'm not going to say that that's saying you cut corners sounds like a bad thing, but it's actually clever in this context because he had to use what he had. And if you look at the kind of flash forwards with Darkseid and Superman, if you actually look really closely, those are reused shots from Man of Steel that they edited over to make those happen, which is really cool because I didn't notice. Obviously, Darkseid as a character was full CG, but they they plugged him into shots that they had used for Man of Steel. Um, and some of them were unused shots from Man of Steel. Some of them were just like zoomed in or like, you know, slightly changed so that you couldn't tell, which is pretty impressive. They put a lot of resources into finishing it, and it was mostly pressure from AT&T. The problem arises, or at least the fallout problem that we're having now in the wake of it being released, is that the HBO Max team and the Warner Brothers team are two different teams, both under the umbrella of AT&T, but they also are supposed to cooperate with each other. That's why any HBO Max property has the Warner Brothers stamp at the beginning. And they have, I want to say it's three people in charge of HBO Max, and they each have their own department. And then you have Ann Sarnov, who's the CEO of, I, th I think the official title is Warner Media, but she's like the Warner Brothers movies person. And then you have Walter Hamada, who's in charge of DC films. They were kind of strong armed into making the Snyder Cut happen. And lo and behold, as it's coming out, Walter Hamada basically sabotaged the advertising attempts. I don't know if you've seen some of the things he posted talking about it when it was coming out, but he sounded super not excited about it. He sounded like he was really not trying to get people to go see it. Anytime people asked about it, he would try to move on to a different subject. So he was clearly not happy about it. He didn't want it to happen at all. And something I've discovered, and Sarnoff has been very outspoken about not using anything for Z of Zack Snyder's for in ever again. She literally says, we have no plans of working with him in the future on anything. And one of the, this is, I guess you could argue it's a theory, but she was the one who told him he was not allowed to shoot anything extra for the Snyder Cut. He was supposed to use just everything they had filmed originally, and they were just supposed to add digital footage and uh, do this, you know, go, do all the CGI. Well, as we know, the nightmare sequence at the very end of the movie and the scene with Martian Manhunter at the end of the movie were both also spoilers if you haven't seen it. But I also am not sure why you'd be investing this far in this episode if you hadn't seen it. <laughs> those were extra. Those were not part of the original principal photography. And the way he shot those, this is one of my favorite parts. He called the actors up and had them fly over and he filmed those scenes in his backyard with his own equipment. So the entire nightmare sequence at the end was filmed in, in Zack Snyder's backyard. And uh, also, I think it's definitely worthy of note that he Zack Snyder got zero dollars to make this. He did not take any kind of paycheck. And that was one of the conditions under which he was allowed to make it. Also, he did not pay Ben Affleck or Ray Fisher or Joe Manganiello uh, or Ezra Miller uh, or Amber Heard when they came over to his house. They 
and that just shows the power that this guy has. Like what you were saying earlier with them saying he's like the last good, powerful male figure in Hollywood. They literally love working with him so much that they just took their own time on their own dime and flew over to his house to film these extra scenes. That's incredible to me. And that speaks volumes. Jason Momoa has obviously been super vocal about how he feels about Zack Snyder. He absolutely loves the guy. When he did shoot those extra scenes that he wasn't supposed to shoot, uh, they got really mad at him. Warner Brothers did. They were like, we told you not to shoot anything new. And he's like, well, these are going to go in the movie. And they, they told him no. And he's like, all right, if not, I walk. And at that point, HBO Max had been advertising it for months. So I think him having that power over them was kind of frightening to them. And I think the fact that it was a fan movement to undo the damage they had done, I think that also kind of hit them where they live. When it comes to kind of the drama that's come out of what's been called restoring the Snyderverse and everything that's come after, I think it's become personal for them. And I think that's kind of unprecedented. I don't think we've ever seen a studio handle things in like a personal way. It's usually all cold calculated financial issues. And when it comes to if we ever wanted to see a continuation that comes after this version of Justice League, which I think the fan outcry is colossal. The only way we're going to see that is allegedly if the Warner Brothers people and the HBO Max people can all play nice. But the people on the HBO Max side of things, they were all for restoring the Snyderverse. And they had already like started talking to people about having projects that took place in Zack Snyder's universe, but on HBO Max instead of in the theaters. But they still needed the approval of Ann Sarnov and Walter Hamada, and they were they are both vehemently against it. They have been very expressive. Ann Sarnov's gone to the point of calling the people who want to restore the Snyderverse toxic, basically trying to get everyone to shut up, uh, which is why this 4K trailer for the original Justice League theatrical release, I think, was a huge slap in the face to the fan base. And I think they took it as that. If you look at the like-dislike ratio on that video... 3,700 likes, 75,000 dislikes. And uh, the comments section is almost entirely populated with hashtag Restore the Snyderverse, which yep. is quite literally the only hashtag I've ever used in my life. That it's is also going to be on the title of this episode. This. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's perfect. I fear that one of the only ways they're going to pull this off is if AT&T pressures them again. Which is in their power to do, I'm pretty sure. I, that that far, I don't fully understand. So Dwayne Johnson, he's been cast as Black Adam, and he's also been put in charge of actually making the movie. And he has actually been pretty outspoken about supporting the Snyderverse. And he has said that his movie is going to take place in the Snyderverse. But apparently now that promo material for Black Adam is officially coming out, I guess Warner Brothers did give him a gag order. Which is a shame because um, Dwayne Johnson also has the same casting agent as Henry Cavill. And the two of them are actually really good friends, which is weird because they've never been in a movie together. But there was a point pre-gag order where Dwayne Johnson was reported as saying if Warner Brothers wouldn't do it, Dwayne Johnson himself would fund Man of Steel 2. <laughs> like, and so there was a lot of hope there that he would be able to kind of get us there. But again, with that gag order they just put on, and it was an alleged gag order. There wasn't an official news release, but it was kind of one of those inside information things. Like, why did things suddenly get quiet on this? Area? Yeah. Like, and it's human nature not to notice an absence. Right. And then there was also a, um, there's been articles from 
like inside sources that said Warner Brothers told him to like not say anything. So there's there's a lot of pushback. It's a really bizarre case. I don't think we've ever seen a situation where it's the studio fighting the fans and they're fighting them hard. It's really cool because I think it's it's really easy to kind of just throw in the towel, which makes sense. There's it's really kind of depressing. But somebody said, I, I forget what forum it was on or what social media outlet it was on, but somebody was just posting about restore the Snyderverse, And they said how, and you know, this entire saga Zack Snyder set up to kind of represent hope. He wanted to make certain things so dismal so that you see that light at the end. And especially Superman's story arc is supposed to really speak to hope. And there was some forum or some social media outlet where somebody said how, you know, when it comes to restoring the Snyderverse, how do we not lose hope? And I don't know how he found it, but Zack Snyder himself responded to him. And all he said was, don't. And I I mean, I think all the actors are on board. Obviously, Zack Snyder's on board. The fans want it. It's just a matter of if Warner Brothers will kind of swallow their pride and actually let it happen. Honestly, best case scenario, I'm even okay if it's not in theaters. Obviously, I love the theatrical experience. I love going to movie theaters. But I think if they continue this strictly through HBO Max, even if it's through miniseries or something, I think that would work just fine. And Ben Affleck actually, now this was public. This wasn't hearsay. He did say this. He said he would play Batman for as long as he was asked to, as long as Zack Snyder had a hand in it. And um, HBO Max wants to run a series with Ben Affleck's Batman and with Joe Manganiello's Deathstroke. And it would kind of pick up on the original script that Affleck had written for the movie he was supposed to make, uh, which was about Deathstroke. Since obviously in the Snyder Cut, he learns that he's Bruce Wayne. So it's about Deathstroke kind of destroying his life from the inside out. And the climax was supposed to take place in Arkham Asylum. And there were going to be like a he was going to like unlock the gates and basically have a ton of cameos. And I think stretching that out into a series could be pretty cool. Yes, it would. Uh, oh, make my it word. like Nightfall. Uh-huh. Yes, it, it would be. Yeah, it would be kind of like a combination of that and like the Arkham Asylum like game. When it comes to fan-funded films and projects, I mean, there is a track record, especially with some things that are definitely a big part of the pop culture landscape. Granted, the two examples I'm about to use have not aged well. One, of course, being the movie Serenity after Firefly had only gotten one season before it was canceled. And then going back and being able to have that film come out of the rallying cry from the fans. And then uh, the Veronica Mars movie was fan funded. Now, granted, the fourth season that followed greatly divided the fan base again. So maybe not the happiest of endings when all said and done. But the fan momentum does matter significantly, especially with something like this. And I say that having been someone who probably was a little more critical of the watered down Snyder content that we were getting throughout the 2010s in some cases. And there were even elements of, and this is just because again, like my love of the animated DC universe and just different things that are usually a little lighter in tone, like things like Aquaman, Shazam, the Wonder Woman films, they have been things that I have enjoyed more than I haven't, but it always kind of felt like, well, where is this going now that Justice League was such a colossal failure? And the Snyderverse makes it so that it's not a colossal failure anymore. They do have something they can build on. And like it or not, it was Zack Snyder's baby. And it's the strongest foundation they have. And it'd be crazy not to build on it. Yeah. And I obviously that's what people want. But which is wild because that's not what the studio wants. But um, and I I'm 
you know, I have some some apprehensions going ahead because I they're trying really hard to get people to forget about it. They have been really adamant in saying that there's no they are not going to make these projects happen. Now, granted, that's Warner Media and DC Films. So it's theoretically on HBO Max, it would still be possible, but they need that cooperation. But, um, you know, they were talking about focusing. There's a weird gray area because Shazam when it was made was operated within the Snyderverse. You have a newspaper article that has Ben Affleck's Batman in it, and you have a Batarang. That's the type he uses. Um, Superman at the end was originally going to be played by Henry Cavill, but there was a weird uh, scheduling conflict, but it's still his suit. It's still implied that it's him. It's still supposed to be that Superman. Uh, my fear going forward is that they're going to use the flash movie since it is going to be a flashpoint paradox adaptation. My fear is that they're going to use that to completely reset and to attempt to scrub out the Snyderverse because we do have Ben Affleck in that movie uh, as his Batman and any script that would have been approved by them would fit their agenda. And I I think it's very possible that that script could include just kind of wiping out all, all that's been built up to, which would be really unfortunate. But again, if it could still pick up on HBO max, I think it'd be more or less forgivable uh, because we would still be able to see it. It also makes it so you can explain the fact that there's two Suicide Squad movies with very nearly the same title. Shifting gears a bit, throughout the last 10 episodes, we haven't given many mentions to the Storytelling Breakdown blog community. But at this point, we have a lot of good content on it. Our friend Larissa Whitaker, who had a spotlight on Black Panther, wrote blog posts on Craig Ferguson and Wonder Woman 1984. Steven Stahovsky, who edits, writes, and produces content for our team, has written a ton of blog posts about RPGs, movies, and video games. For our final part of this episode, which is obviously focusing extensively on DC film content. I'd like to take a little bit and talk about some of the blogs that I've written for an alternate universe where there's a DC cinematic universe or DCCU, if you will, that begins in 2008. That sounds familiar. Of course, it's when the first Iron Man film came out and it's kind of a what if scenario of what if DC had gotten the ball rolling in a similar fashion. And as I was thinking about it, I realized, well, at that point, the dark Knight is kind of your equivalent to Iron Man. And speaking as a DC fan, after that year, if you had asked me, hey, which of these movies is going to spawn an entire universe of comic book characters around it, I would have said The Dark Knight. Boy, did it pan out in the other direction. But as I started to think about, okay, well, what if DC had started to build off of The Dark Knight? You couldn't have really ramped up to a Justice League film using Batman. At the end of The Dark Knight, he's a wanted criminal you kind of need to do something different with the universe. And I wrote a treatment in the first blog that instead shines a light on another character that's kind of a DC equivalent to Iron Man. Because a lot of people say, oh, Batman and Iron Man, like the, the millionaire, the gadgets, there's so many similarities. I would argue Iron Man is almost more similar to Green Arrow, especially when you factor in the origin story, the getting lost in a foreign land, the having to remake themselves, coming back with a renewed focus and building their superhero identity from there. And you could tell that story with so many amazing elements. You could introduce government agents that are interested in what Oliver Queen is going to do when he comes back to the United States, kind of what Tony interacts with with Agent Coulson in, in the first Iron Man film. And the treatment that I kind of envisioned would feel kind of like a cross between Iron Man, Iron Man 2, and the comic book Green Arrow Year One, it would be kind of like if you put those into a blender. You would start out the film with Oliver Queen as young millionaire who doesn't care about anything, very reckless, 
and winds up trapped on an island and has to find a way to escape and throughout that process learns to use the bow and arrow that he then uses in his career as a crime fighter. He comes back. He interacts with a friend of his who perhaps is in the military, kind of similar to Rhodey with Tony Stark, uh, and that friend could perhaps be one Hal Jordan, so kind of filling a similar role, but we see Hal before he becomes Green Lantern as we kind of see Rhodey before he becomes War Machine, and we have a movie where we get to see Oliver Queen becoming a superhero, perhaps working with another vigilante by the name of Black Canary and going on all sorts of missions that could be a cross between government espionage meets James Bond-esque set pieces, trying to go through and right the wrongs of Queen Industries. And that could even be a mission that they're sent on by a couple of government agents. A character like King Faraday already exists in the DC universe. And you also could introduce a government agent by the name of John Jones. And I wrote that in the blog before it was revealed that General Swanwick is in fact Martian Manhunter in the Snyder Cut, which was an amazing detail. And you establish at that point multiple heroes. You could have a villain early on in the film and then later in the film that's maybe using tech provided by Lex Luthor. And we establish him in the universe as kind of someone who is also after his own means and is willing to fund whoever he needs to uh, to get what he wants. And you could start out with someone, say, I don't know, like Count Vertigo. And I don't know why in my head the perfect casting for that has always been Paul Bettany. So we're liberally borrowing from the MCU at this point. But having him appear at the beginning of the film before Oliver Queen winds up on the island and then have him have some Luthor technology at the end for a final battle against Green Arrow and Black Canary. And from there, you continue to introduce characters. You continue to basically speed up the timeline. We run into Wonder Woman a little sooner than expected. We run into Superman earlier than we actually did in 2013 with Man of Steel. All of this was fun for me to speculate on. I would encourage you to check out those blog posts uh, and see some of the other mini treatments that we have in those posts. And I'll, of course, link to them in the show notes for this podcast episode. But that was me both in 2020, and I think in, I was still doing it in 2021 as well, kind of waxing poetically about, oh, what if DC had gotten it right in 2008 and 2010? But with our conversation, we've kind of shown that, hey, they still have a chance to get it right in 2021. With that little wrap up, I just want to say thank you, Lucas, for sharing your thoughts and your following of this. Uh, we greatly appreciate you being able to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit. I think it gives us a greater appreciation for what we got to see on HBO Max for when we took the four hours to watch the Snyder yes, Cut. It was definitely. absolutely amazing. Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks for having me on again. everyone. This is Steven Stahoski, writer, producer, and editor for the SB team, and I'll be your host and interviewer for this Spotlight segment with a very good friend of our team, Casey Stombaugh. Welcome. Thank you, Steven. So picking up on last month's episode about the creation and the behind-the-scenes look at 
the Star Wars campaign that we both played, we wanted to get one of our players into the studio, and you expressed some interest in being here. With that episode, you got the DM's perspective, and let's Mm -hmm. kind of talk about a little bit of the player side. But before that, can you give me a little bit of your history with role-playing games in general, or your background coming to the table, as it were? Oh, of course, absolutely. Tabletop RPGs, role-playing, video games, all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's... That's what I do. It's what I've always done. My kind of start in all of that is theater and music in general. Um, I've been doing it since I was like six years old. And for me, one of the things that I absolutely love about uh, role-playing games is being able to create characters and just let them play around in the chaos that is the collective mind sitting around the table you say play around and i say cause but that's okay (laughs) um yeah so you've got the theater background the music background that's obviously a big big thing when it comes to creating your characters Mm -hmm. getting to the table for star wars we both kind of came by the same route where we played task force x with Mm -hmm. ben and the rest of the crew before we got to star wars you had (laughs) You had the, the, I think one of the challenges that everybody was presented uh, with with Task Force X was we were given characters and you got arguably the one character that I thought was going to be the most useless and turned him into probably the most entertaining person at the table. Oh, he was still useless. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so tell us a little bit about the Suicide Squad before we get into yeah, to, of course, to Star of course. Wars. So one of the great things that uh, I have to mention when we bring up Suicide Squad is that I really was not friends with you guys before we started doing that. This is true. And this um, was almost two, almost three years ago? Like three years ago. Oh, yeah. gosh. This is, I had met Ben, I knew Ben, but we hadn't really hung out. I met you there and ended up working with you. You're one of my best friends. You yeah, know, it's like, like all, all hell broke loose because we sat down at a table to roll some dice. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was given the character... Captain Boomerang. (laughs) Um, So we start off our first session. Me and Steven don't know each other. And Ben wants to give us a little taste of combat. So we have a... A shoot-off. Yeah, basically. a shoot-off. That's right, because I was I was at that point, I Deadshot. was playing Deadshot. Yeah. It was before we made the call to switch my character to Rick Flagg. Yes. A gun versus a boomerang, you know. Fake core, man. <laughs> exactly. They're the same stats. Exactly. It's fine. <laughs> I lost, of course. but Not by a lot, though. Like, it was close. <laughs> Our first mission was on this island, and this is where we played... Task Force X, Suicide Squad, probably four or five sessions. And this yeah. is the one that kind of cemented the character of uh, Boozerang. Yes, Boozerang. <laughs> Boozerang, for sure. Well, it's also a wonderful example of the DM can have this great plan for these wonderful things. <sighs> and by wonderful, I mean bad, terrible things to happen to your players and great villains and great antagonist type NPCs mm-hmm. to happen. And then your players come to the table, and they take those plans, they roll them up in a nice little ball, and they throw them in the trash. <laughs> Which I think is exactly what you did. Oh. But completely, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it felt... See, here's the thing, and we'll get into this a little bit later. You know this well. Ben knows this well. When I play a tabletop RPG, I like to mess with my DMs a lot. And I just, I think it's fun to try and go in directions that make sense, but aren't what people are expecting. Boomerang, squishiest character ever. He would die at the drop of a hat. 
So I basically made him our comedic relief. And I did that by uh, deciding that I had an item called the Code of Many Things. Oh, the Code of Many Things. <laughs> which uh, <laughs> I would pay a fate point for, which I think we've discussed the rules of uh, right. fate core on here. Yeah. Basically, I would pay the DMs a fate point and get to declare a story detail. And those story details would be what I would pull out of my coat. And it would just be something random, like a rubber chicken or a loofah. That belonged to another character. That belonged to another character that I had stolen. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Oftentimes it was booze. Although I think the loofah was actually when I rolled a crit fail trying to pull out a bottle of beer. It was a good time. But in that first session, one of the crazy things is, is that we were trying to track down an Amazo android. But the thing about the Amazo android is that it absorbs people's powers. Mm -hmm. Boomerang doesn't have a power. <laughs> but the funny thing is, is that we were supposed to be fighting him. And he found us. We were trying to hide no, from him. he found you. No. He was about to find us. And I ran off somewhere without telling anybody else because I'm like... We need to split up. Like, I'm going to die if I stay with these guys. And the entire table was super mad at me. And then Ben had the Amazo android run into me somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And I ended up befriending the Amazo yes, android the and turning him over friend. to our side. Um, uh, <laughs> and, I mean, you rolled it. You rolled well. <laughs> one, of the, one of the best parts of Task Force S was that we just, we had this Amazo android that was now our team mascot thankfully befriended by our team drunk and it was great yeah exactly. um so then you were part of the conversation to start star wars mm. i think I, right I, it, i'm it was pretty kind sure of the conversation yeah. that you and i had mm -hmm. and then i took it to ben yeah the the three of us even though i'm not one of you know the dms with you guys the three of us would often get together and talk about storyline, maybe plot points, and just kind of riff off of each other, just because we enjoy creating like that. Mm -hmm. I personally don't really enjoy running a game as a DM. It doesn't fit my personality type, but I do love coming up with world ideas and all that sort of stuff. Right, so being a player, getting into Star Wars, there was a lot that you acted pretty much at, very actively contributed, which is the point, right, mm -hmm. of being a player at a, at a table with the RPG. Yeah. Some of those moments in Star Wars were things that Ben and I could never, ever, under any circumstances, have planned for. And even in just beginning Star Wars, just with creating Brack in the first place. Mm -hmm. Talk me through a little bit of, of that from a player's standpoint. The beginning, yeah. the, that first season, give me a cliff notes, because we, we definitely dove really deeply into that first season in the episode Rogue Producers. But then going on from the, that first mm -hmm. season, the, the second and the third how your character kind of grew and, and, well, your characters yeah. grew <laughs> uh, or didn't. Some of them got incinerated. So one of the great things for me about building the characters in Star Wars is kind of going off of the whole Suicide Squad thing, we actually got to make these characters as opposed to having them be in an existing canon and given to us. So when I made my character, we started this campaign maybe, what, two years ago, something like that. So at that point, like... I've always watched Star Wars, like, I've known about the movies, you know, some of the different, like, cartoons and whatnot, but I never really dove deep into it. And because I didn't have, like, this huge breadth of knowledge of the world in general, 
I wanted to make a character that was pretty young, who really didn't know a lot of what was going on, because I, as a player, really didn't know what was going on. And so I gave him both of them, really. Uh, again, they've talked about Brack and Saf, but I made Saf originally as an NPC and handed her off to Ben. And mm-hmm. then about two sessions in, I was like, hey, I have things that I want them to do that I I want yeah, to happen. And that, I basically we just started it playing. Back to you. Yeah. And that wasn't the original intention, as we mentioned in, in mm-hmm. the episode, was that Saf wasn't supposed to be with us, but the dice mm-hmm. always have other ideas, and, and the players have other ideas. It's part of the fun. Yeah, exactly. And so I made this 19-year-old Corellia kid who could kind of shoot and was mostly a pilot, and then I just gave him tons of room to grow. I'd say we, we accomplished that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Brax coming of age kind of became the center focus of really the entire second season. Yeah. A little bit into the third, but definitely the entire second season. Yeah. Some of the coolest moments came from, I mean, obviously not from the DM's brains, mm-hmm. which is what you expect with any tabletop, D&D, Monster of the Week, whatever. Yeah. You, you expect that from your players to really bring some more of that mm-hmm. that creative process to the table. Yeah. I'm going to regret saying this, but <laughs> let's, let's talk about some of your favorite moments oh, with boy. Brack. And I know one of them is going to come up and I don't want to talk about it, but <laughs> we're going to have to. So one of the fun things for me, especially once I had both characters, was being able to mess with the DMs, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah so we know. <laughs> Steven was playing the spy, Silk, who... None of us trusted because he was rightfully so a sleaze bag. Shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't trust me, but you should. But you shouldn't. So once I think we're in like session three at this point in time, we're on the ship. We're leaving Corellia. I have Saf try to seduce Silk, which was super fun, and Stephen had no idea what was going on. Um, no. We go through this whole, like, 15-minute thing, and then he has Silk turn around, and then he feels something. So he turns around to open the door to say, get the hell out of my room, and she stabs me. Or yep. Saf stabbed Silk, right? Should we rephrase yes. that? Saf stabs Silk. With no roll, <laughs> I will mention. Sneak attack. Ugh, gross. <laughs> I set you up. Yeah, I set fair. you that's up fair. so hard. That. But the thing is, is that nobody trusted him. And at that point, there was another NPC character who was very important to Brack and Saf, who we were pretty sure, we being me, I guess, I was pretty sure that Silk had something to do with the fact that we couldn't find him. Oh, you're right. That's right. You, you blame me for your... Your flight instructor mentor dude's disappearance. Actually, surprisingly, I had nothing to do with that. (laughs) That one thing you had nothing to do with. (laughs) It's not my fault. I surprisingly told the truth. Um, Yeah, so that was definitely a good one. And just some of the role-playing on the ship in general. Mm -hmm. Ben and I have discussed on multiple occasions. We're like, man, we really wish we had more of that. We'll we'll work on it. Yeah. But there was one character in particular that you really, as Brack, you really butted heads with. Yes. In some really great ways. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. At this point, we are in season two, which uh, we haven't 
talked about a ton. Not a lot. So we had a couple of new characters join us for our second season, a couple of new players. Our friend uh, Austin, who mm-hmm. was playing a Bothan rebel like marksman. Et- Marksman, espionage, like Green Beret sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, Spec Ops. Austin's character was a lot of fun. So Wanrick, right? Yeah, Wanrick. This Bothan, special forces, sniper, practically could do no wrong except when it came to Brack. Yes. So, oh man, there's a lot of setup for this one. At this point, we're on the planet Typhon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, through a long series of events that will need to be discussed at some other point, we have control of this settlement. Mm-hmm. on Tython. Yeah, so really your guys' conflict came to a head in Season 3. We had just gotten back from a failed mission, and it's important to point out that Brack is effectively the captain of the crew that is our party. Yeah, but also, I mean, that crew had grown Yeah, to encompass a, like a couple hundred people. So yeah. Brack's got a lot on his shoulders. He's gone from kid cadet to commander and responsible for the lives yeah. of, of 100 people at least. Exactly. And that's kind of what we were mentioning earlier with like that whole coming of age in season two and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So at this point, we are not affiliated with the Empire. We are not affiliated with the rebels officially. And <laughs> uh, we're also not affiliated with any of the crime syndicates, but we are working with them. Mm-hmm. And so we get a tip off and we we find this guy who could basically fund our operation. Brack being this this leader of this settlement, it's like, yeah, like we need funding. We need to be able to take care of our people. But Steven decided to throw a little bit of tension at his players. So we had two rebel like members who were part of our crew. Mm-hmm. So kind of dual allegiances there, one of them being Wanrick. And Steven, as the DM, decides to send through to these two characters kill orders for, I think, three different individuals we had potential to run into on this mission. One of them being this guy who is offering us funding. And Wanrick decides to take the shot. If you've been playing a tabletop RPG, like, you know, like, you're in those characters' emotions. Oh, for sure, yeah. Like, it's it's a game, obviously. Like, I'm not going to be mad at my players, but, like, as Brack, I was pissed. I'm the pilot. Literally, like, I was trying to leave him there. I mean, if you're going to, like, endanger the lives of these hundreds of people that we have around us, you don't belong here. As Brack. Obviously, right. I got talked down by the rest of our party. Yeah, but... It's one of those things where, from the player's perspective, yeah, the, the DM threw a monkey wrench at you, mm-hmm. um, and you guys ro- rolled with it, which was which was oh, really really great. Yeah, but from the DM's perspective, I I'm looking at what's going on on the, on the at the table and going, this is going too well, or this they need something else. <laughs> yeah, and so I throw the monkey wrench because you guys were at that point were working as such a honestly a great team. <laughs> Things mm-hmm. were going really yeah, well for you. Right. Like man, this is this is too easy. Um, but that's not even the point. We look back on that interaction fondly, even though it was very emotionally oh, heightened. Well, yeah, and there's well, there's the second part to that too, which is we get back to Typhon, mm-hmm. and me and Wanrick, Brack and Wanrick, go off somewhere, and some of our best role playing happened in that conversation just mm-hmm. between the two of us, because as our characters, we both were staunchly like we believed in what we needed and what we needed was directly opposite from the other 
And so it became this whole conversation of this give and take and all of this really wonderful, wonderful RP that wouldn't have happened without just like that one little detail. Yeah. Thinking about maybe drawing a few things to a close, but can you think of or can you name another moment where you really thought the the role playing as a player was what I mean, obviously, at a t- as a tabletop RPG player, as, as we both are, which we've done. <laughs> how many countless campaigns with how many different DMs over yeah. over the years, right? I mean, I started my role-playing experience in college. I'm sure yours is probably not much before that or yeah. after that. Ba- basically at the same um, point. So we've yeah. been doing this for, what, six, eight years playing yeah. role t- role-playing games. Some of the best moments of role-playing in the Star Wars campaign, if I were to ask you to name two or three, we've gotten we've gotten at least two of them already. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's what's the third one? Especially considering, well, I, I I I feel bad because we haven't really talked about Saf. For sure, Saf is an interesting character because uh, she blew herself up at the end of season one. Yeah, she did. She was effectively comatose for the entirety of season two, mm-hmm. and then when we brought her back, um, we did so with kind of a split party. Right, yeah, because then at that point, you didn't get... Brack and Saf did not get to interact. So mm-hmm. going into that split party... I think I was the only player who was in, in both. In both, because um, two characters. But what I decided I wanted to do with that is, okay, Saf spent a year comatose. What does that do to somebody? willingly choosing to blow yourself up to save your friends and coming back after a coma and the trauma and everything that you have to deal with with that and she was not terribly stable to begin no not really but what i decided to do with that is try and focus more on getting into a healing process Mm -hmm. with this character and what does that look like what does coping look like she comes out of it she's still super angry all the time throwing herself everywhere it's like i should be dead and just it was a really honestly tough character to play to get into because it's like i want to have these moments where we get to understand what's going on inside of this character's head but you can't just like monologue it just doesn't work that way in a tabletop RPG. Right. I mean, you can do that, but that's not what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's there's been times where that's been appropriate. Yeah. Like the end of season one, I monologued because the captain left a message behind yeah, for the party. Exactly. Right? Those exactly. kinds of things. But when you're actively playing with other people, you're right. A monologue yeah. usually isn't super important. Yeah. I have a question for you. Of course. As a player, do you think it is just as important to be doing prep work as it is for a DM to be doing prep work? Like, Because you know how much work go, it goes into being ready to run a session as a, as a DM. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, is it the same amount of work? Is it is it not? Is it different? I wouldn't call it the same amount of work. It is definitely, there are similarities, but it is different. The way that I always think about it is that as a DM, it's your decision or it's your job, basically, as a DM to build the world and build the events mm-hmm. around Set the it. stage, yeah. as it were, right? Yeah. And as a character, it's your job to, your job, you know, it's, it's a game, we're having fun, but like, yeah, but this, this is coming from like a theater perspective. Mm-hmm. It's your job to show up and be ready to play. Mm-hmm. By play, I don't mean play the game, I mean 
play, have fun, like yeah. get in oh, there, sure. sink your teeth into it. And so it's it's basically like preparing for improv. You want to know your character. You want to know all of this stuff that's going on in their head around them. And you want to walk into your session knowing that and feeling all of that. And then just letting yourself to react to the stimuli that the DMs are throwing at you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, like when I stabbed you, uh, <laughs> you, you know, you plan out things. I had to plan out that one. Like I spent days thinking about how exactly to manipulate you so that I could stab <laughs> you. So, yeah, preparation can be important, but it's not. 100% necessary to go in like this is the stuff that I want to do you know like right it's a lot more free form and it should just be fun yeah so the prep work for a player we're really talking about more happens before mm -hmm. before the the season before the we yeah. all sit down for the first time right yeah. your backstory your character sheets all that stuff oh, yeah. happens and then prepping for individual sessions is just making sure you're in the headspace to play exactly which you know you may be successful you may not we definitely had right there were definitely sessions where we were like i'm going to probably murder the player sitting next to me because yeah. oh my goodness and we had plenty of those or like i'm gonna murder this the dm, DM because he's a jerk because uh he killed uh my friend my best friend your robot, robot and then uh my girlfriend tried to kill me and all my friends all on the same day yeah you're right i blew up your girlfriend your robot and your ship all in the matter of about two hours yeah it sucked, but it was great. Like, it was good it, for your character. It made so much sense. Like Emotional trauma is good for your character. No, like, <laughs> that's Sorry. the thing about storytelling is that tension and loss and all of that stuff is what drives a story forward. Without any of that, it's boring. And so, yeah, like, it sucks, like, being in that headspace as that character. And I can step back at the end of a session and look at it and be like, that was amazing. I loved that because you just get to feel, you get to be those characters. And it's just, it's such a fun feeling to be able to do that. And then to be able to step back away from it. Right, exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. And that's, I think that's the biggest draw of, of any tabletop, you know, not just hours um, playing Star Wars, but anytime we sit down at a table with other people to play these kinds of games where we are stepping into the lives of these characters or to build a world for these characters to step into. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, the only thing you really want to hear is, man, that was great. When are we doing this again? Yeah. And one of the things that I love to do as a player, just to kind of bring it back around, is these DMs, you, Ben, you guys are putting so much effort into this. I want you guys to have some fun too. I don't want everything to go your way. <laughs> fair, then then fair, you're just following the script. Fair. So it's like, here, let me... Let me make this fun for the DM, too. Let me make sure that the enemy is my best friend <laughs> yeah. by the end of this session. Or let me just run away and do something else. I would describe my play style as very chaotic. It seems chaotic, but it's all very planned. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to describe that, but you're not wrong. Um, again, thank you for joining us on Storytelling Breakdown. Absolutely. And we'll hopefully see you soon. Yeah, thank you, guys. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahovsky joins us as a writer, producer, and editor. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Our social media coordinator is Ella Abbott. Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown.
WSP, Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>